You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. I'm Sean Stevens, and today we're talking to Dr. Nathan Pinsker, who will be familiar to most of you as the chair of the RACGP Expert Committee in eHealth and Practice Systems. Nathan also wears a number of other hats, mostly in and around eHealth, and today we're talking about My Health Record. Welcome, Nathan. Uh, hi, Sean. Good to be here. Let's start with the basics, Nathan. The health record started in 2012, but what exactly is a My Health Record? So, Sean, My Health Record was originally called the Personally Controlled Electronic Health Record. Essentially, what it is, is an aggregation of healthcare information of an individual's healthcare information that's uploaded to a central repository. So it's a mixture of documents, which includes documents from general practice, such as shared health summaries or event summaries, discharge summaries from hospitals, pathology and radiology, other diagnostic information, Medicare data, and also information that's added by consumers. All right. Well, it all sounds really quite practical. So does it include things like item numbers, medications, radiology, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. Medicare data includes the Medicare benefits schedule consultation. So every Medicare consultation item number gets uploaded. PBS and RPBS data gets uploaded. ACER immunization, or now it's called AIR, the Strain Immunization Register, gets uploaded. Also, organ donor status also gets uploaded, and that's all available through the Medicare view. In addition, prescriptions that are not on the PBS that are uploaded electronically will also be available. And as I mentioned, pathology and radiology is increasingly becoming available. Hmm. Okay. Just on pathology and radiology, I've heard that patients will be able to access the results within seven days, even if the doctor hasn't reviewed those results. Can you explain to me how that's going to work and specifically with sensitive results like cancer diagnoses or infectious diseases like HIV? Sure. So look, there was a substantial consultation period that occurred between 2012 and uh, 2016, and a number of different models were proposed. The original model that was proposed was one that involved clinical curation so that results would not get uploaded to my health record until they were ticked off by the ordering clinician or or any other clinician involved in the care of that patient, which is essentially the model that we use when we check results and upload them into our own clinical systems. That was deemed to be not workable for a number of reasons, and it also didn't suit the hospital model where results are not curated by a provider. So the model has changed to one that's now known as the seven-day rule. In essence, at the point that a clinician orders a series of tests, those tests will go to the laboratory as normal. Once the results are available, the report will be uploaded to My Health Record. It will not be available to the consumer for seven days. It's available to any clinician who can access My Health Record immediately on upload, but the actual report will not be available to the consumer for seven days. What is available to the consumer immediately is the metadata. So they'll know the test has been uploaded. They'll know the type of the test and the data was performed and the laboratory where the test was performed or the same for diagnostic imaging, but they don't see the result for seven days. After seven days, that window is open and the consumer can see the result. So effectively, you have a seven-day period by which a clinician can review the results and determine whether or not further action is required. means I'm going to have to stay on top of my results then, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it's... It was a really interesting and complex conversation 
and we received information from the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality, and their advice was that more harm is done by results not being reviewed and being made available to consumers through through the normal processes as opposed to consumers getting their results directly. It's interesting because results that get missed can cause harm. Also, the other thing to, I think, bear in mind is that if a consumer wants to access their results immediately by contacting the laboratory, most laboratories in Australia now will release the results to the consumer immediately. So the, the Really? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So the larger providers are making the results available either via phone call or via portals in some instances. In the US and in some other countries, it's now mandatory that laboratories make those results available to consumers directly. Now, there's always a question around the risk of sensitive test results, unexpected test results, but the evidence on this is unclear. And again, what the Commission for Safety and Quality advises that more good is likely to come out of this than harm. Again, we don't know for sure, this will become clearer over time. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting to have this conversation again in sort of 12 months' time. The other thing you should want to be aware, there is also a proviso where if there is a sensitive or unexpected result, the either the requester or the laboratory themselves can block the test for a further seven days. So it does hmm. create a further opportunity. But again, as you said, you will need to be on top of your of your results. Yeah, which is probably a good thing anyway, really. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing just to bear in mind is that what is uploaded is not actually what we call results. It's actually a report, and there is no standard definition of a report. So if you order an FBE, LFTs, TFTs, and other tests on one request pad, one lab may upload that as one report. Other labs may upload that as a series of separate reports. So in the event that um, a consumer says, please do not upload something in that order, if it's all part of one report, nothing will go up. Right. So when I started doing the My Health Record uploads, we had to get signed consent. Now I believe verbal consent is okay. Is that correct? Yes and no. So look, again, this was a fairly confusing space. And the advice that we had in the early days was that for a shared health summary, it required the consumer or the patient to review the information in conjunction prior to upload. That, that advice has subsequently been clarified in that the principle that underpins the My Health Record is one of standing consent. And standing consent effectively means that any information that is generated through a clinical process, whether it's a shared health summary, event summary, pathology, whatever, can be uploaded to My Health Record without obtaining any consent or any further consent from the consumer. The consent is standing and it requires the consumer to specifically say, do not upload that to my health record. In other words, they need to formally withdraw the consent. So you can create a shared health summary and upload it. If you meet the legislative class of providers that is known as the nominated provider, and, and you as a GP, of course, are, you can create a shared health summary without seeking any formal consent because the consent is standing. Really? Okay. So that applies to people who have consented previously in a consultation. What about now um, that we're in this phase where it's opt-out and then what happens after the opt-out period finishes? Sure. So, so opt-in and opt-out doesn't change the principle of standing consent. Once a record is established, you don't need to obtain consent to upload information. It's up to the consumer to say, I don't want that piece of clinical information to be sent up to my health record. So opt-in and opt-out doesn't change that. The only real difference between opt-in and opt-out at a 
practical level is that through the opt-in process, the patient or the consumer has probably, but not always, probably made an active decision to participate in my health record, whereas through the opt-out process, it's a passive one. They're being brought into the system unless they choose to exclude themselves. Okay. All right. That makes good sense. So can you tell me a little bit about the access and control patients have over their record? Okay. So look, this is a really important feature of my health record, and it's not as well understood by consumers and probably providers as well as it should be. So one of the design features is that when a My Health Record is established by you, either through opt-in today or after the end of the year by opt-out, you can set up an account with MyGov, and many Australians now have a MyGov account because it creates a whole lot of other linkages to Medicare, to the ATO, and a number of other functions. Then create a link to My Health Record. When you log into My Health Record, there are a series of access controls that you can establish depending upon your preferences. Now, it does take a little bit of time to work this out, but if you spend enough time, it's like adding your piece of software, eventually work out the functionality. So in going in, if the basic principle of My Health Records essentially says, allow any healthcare provider who's involved in my healthcare to access my record. But if you're not happy with that, you can set up an access code, a record access code, or a PIN number, which essentially restricts the record to anyone other than the people you give that PIN number to. You can also, as a consumer, if you just want to limit access to specific documents, put a document access code on, which limits access to those documents. Also, as a consumer, if you want to remove specific documents from view, you can do that as well. So you've got a series of controls that, as a consumer, that says, look, generally, I'm happy to have anyone involved in my healthcare access it as an open system, or I'd rather lock it down because I only want certain providers to be able to access the information when I share my PIN number with them. Okay. Yeah, well, that all sounds pretty reasonable. I believe there's a provision in the My Health Record Act that allows so-called enforcement bodies, so police, but also ATO and Centrelink, to be able to apply to the Australian Digital Health Agency to access the record. Can you please explain this to me? Yes. Again, this is an interesting piece of the legislation that was poorly understood by most of us until about two weeks ago. So there's a section in the legislation, Section 70, which allows for government law enforcement agencies and the Australian Taxation Office to be able to access an individual's My Health record for the purposes of either uh, investigating fraud or criminal or other nefarious activity or for protecting the public purse. We uh, spent a bit of time looking at this and then we went back to the original 2012 legislation, the PCHR, and exactly the same clause was in the 2012 legislation. So it transferred from the 2012 legislation to the 2016 legislation. It appears that the genesis of this legislation tracks back to the Medicare system. And in the Medicare system, it makes reasonable sense that government law enforcement agencies and possibly the ATO should be able to access that data in order to investigate potential misuse of the Medicare system over servicing or potential fraud. That, that makes perfect sense. It seemed to make very little sense in the healthcare setting world. So once this section of legislation became apparent, I can remind everyone that in 2012 it was passed by a Labor government and in 2016 it was passed by a Liberal government. So both sides of the parliament have effectively supported this legislation. But what became clear was the legislation wasn't fit 
and for in, in the my health record or the uh, clinical world, and it was causing significant concern. So the college met with the Minister for Health, the AMA met with the Minister for Health, and that all happened last week, and the Minister agreed to amend the legislation to tighten the access. Under the legislation, technically no court order was required, it was really just a process issue that had been determined by the Digital Health Agency. So the ministers tightened the legislation to say that no access will be granted without a court order. In fact, since 2012, however, there have been no such requests. So it's unlikely that there will be any specific requests for this data, and the legislation has now been tightened to make it an enforceable court process. Yeah, look, I think that's very important because if people are going to have confidence in this system, they have to know that it's not going to be used for things other than healthcare. So, look, I'm glad to hear that, that that's transpired. Sure. Look, and the, and the other change that occurred uh, as a consequence of the consultations last week was that people were concerned that uh, should they decide to opt out of the system after their record had been created, that the information in the record persisted for 30 years or until age 130. That's actually when your healthcare identifier expires. But really, for most people, it meant for 30 years. The problem with that was that people were saying, well, we don't know what's going to be happening to that data and who would have access to it. So the minister has agreed that at the point that an individual opts out, uh, their record will be effectively cancelled and not available to anybody. No, again, another wise change. Yeah, it's good to see the college and the AMA having influence on policy uh, to bring in some common sense. So, Nathan, which of your patients would make ideal candidates for the My Health Record? Yeah, so, Sean, that's a great <coughs> question. And uh, the RAC is currently, um, through my committee, uh, doing a roadshow around the country. So we're um, in most capital cities, most uh, major rural towns and also uh, webinars and that's happening over the next three months. Uh, I guess everyone's got a different view as to where the use cases um, are the most beneficial. We see the use cases as being not so much for the regular patient seeing the regular GP because it's, it's reasonable for the regular patient and the regular GP to have all that information available in, in your own clinical software system. You've known that patient for quite a period of time. So you're generally not going to require access to a third-party source. We see my health record as a source of additional information when you can't obtain it through the normal channels. And where that would work really well is for patients who are seen in the out-of-hours period, so patients who are seen by a deputizing service, patients who might come to your practice from another area, Fly-in, fly-out workers. I was in Port Hedland a few weeks ago where my daughter's doing third-year medicine and I visited a practice there and in that practice they said, look, half our patients come from Perth. We don't have access to the practice information in Perth. They don't have access to our information. So they thought a My Health mm -hmm. Record system would work really well for them. Grey nomads, people who are travelling up to Broome or to the Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast, again, a really good use case. And then the other one that's been identified is patients who present in an emergency department or who are treated by an ambulance service, unconscious or incapacitated, where having access to clinical information may make a difference in terms of determining the clinical outcomes. So knowing whether or not they've had an allergy or a significant adverse event or what medicines they're taking, particularly when they can't convey that themselves, what past history they've had, may be useful in those circumstances. Again, this will take time to validate. It's a big change process, but it seems to make sense that there are circumstances where, where clinicians getting access to that information early 
prior to the point of having to make a clinical decision should make a difference in terms of either saving lives or leading to improved healthcare service delivery and potentially improved healthcare outcomes. Yeah, look, I think it definitely has a lot of potential. What about patients that you would counsel against getting a My Health record? Any patients you think might fall into that category? So again, what we're doing on the roadshow is we're explaining to people what My Health record is, what it isn't, how it works, where it might fit into clinical practice, what the uh, risks are in terms of viewing the data. And we're saying to clinicians, you make a decision about how you best participate and how you choose to participate. And I think the same principle applies for patients. What I say, if you're concerned about the government, if you're really concerned about privacy and confidentiality, if you don't have any trust in the system at all, if you're perfectly well and you've never seen a healthcare provider, then you may not need a My Health record. But for a lot of Australians who have chronic and complex conditions, who visit multiple healthcare providers, who attend hospitals on a regular basis, who have multiple sources of clinical information and are taking multiple medicines, for them to be able to access their own healthcare information and share it with the providers of their choice at the appropriate time may be of significant benefit. Okay. Well, look, thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate your time. That's really laid out for me, certainly, the benefits and the current state of play with the My Health Record. And I wish you and your committee all the best. Okay. Thank you. 